The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. This non-commercial program is for educational purposes only. You're listening to Radio Azim Premji University. You recognize the instrument playing the melody, right? Of course you do. It is the sound of the harmonium. Any Indian would recognize this sound anywhere. But have you wondered where the harmonium comes from? Perhaps not, because the question itself doesn't arise. The harmonium, after all, is as Indian as the ground beneath our feet. Or is it? Is it? To find out, come hear the fascinating story of the harmonium in India. My name is Sharma Dibbasu. I teach history and social science at Azim Premji University. And I'll take you on a dramatic journey as the harmonium made its way from Europe to the Indian subcontinent. And despite many significant odds, grew roots in its musical landscape. Unboxed the harmonium in India with Sharma Dibbasu. Episode 1 The story of the harmonium or my interest in the story of the harmonium goes back to actually childhood when I look at it now. Uh, it's one of the first objects, musical instruments that's present in my musical awareness as I'm growing up in 1980s Bengal in a middle class family. It seems that everybody has a harmonium. It is brought out in the flimsiest of excuses for any kind of occasion to anybody wanting to sing and boom there appears a harmonium and people open their songbook place it on the harmonium sit and start singing and that image uh, which is a pretty common one i guess uh, for people growing up around that time in certain parts of india surely um, is embossed in my mind uh, the harmonium in other words was always there Uh, so it never occurred to me to ask about its origins where did the harmonium come from it came from there it is right there everybody has it so imagine my surprise when i think i'm first or second year in college by now uh, early 90s and i've started reading modern european literature and i start with milan kundera's uh, joke the book his first novel right and there one of the characters jaroslav who's uh, a friend of the main protagonist ludovic suddenly recounts his musical childhood and he's talking about the harmonium being ever present in his house in the context of moravian folk music so i was thinking like how can that be i thought this is a bengali instrument which uh, the bengali bhadralok always uh, you know whenever they feel musical and you know they pull it out and it's it's ours how can it be in czechoslovakia so that's what got me first thinking about the harmonium that why is it present in such disparate parts of the world when i thought it's an instrument of indian origin uh, it seems that other people are laying claims to something that i thought was entirely mine and uh, that's when i start digging deeper into the harmonium and the fascinating history of its unfolding in the indian subcontinent first through the colonial rule Uh, the harmonium travels the world along with uh, not just indians but south asians in general 
and uh, that is the story that i want to share with you folks so the origin of the harmonium which is technically speaking an aerophone free reed organ instrument uh, is absolutely fascinating during the first half of the 19th century in europe lots of instrument makers and inventors are actually experimenting with different kinds and forms of free reed organs in 1842 a french inventor and instrument maker named alexander debain comes up with his own version of the free reed organ which he claims is uh, extremely portable and of a very simple make so he patents the free reed organ but even more cleverly he patents the name that he's given to the free reed organ and he's called his own free reed organ the harmonium now mind you at this point there are at least other 50 other free reed organs of similar kinds in the european market there must have been something about alexander debain's particular instrument especially its portability and the simplicity of its make this particular instrument is patented in 1842 and by the late 1840s across the english channel in england you have companies which are um, using the patent and producing their own versions of the harmonium as well so this particular class of free reed organs which we will now on call the harmonium uh, is was typically played when it was originally invented seated it had a four octave keyboard and you manipulated the bellows with your feet so it's like a piano in other words uh, with the added uh, thing that is the bellows so in terms of its make and its technology it's different from the piano because the piano actually when you press the keys there's a hammer that strikes the string and the sound comes out but here it's the passing of the air through the reeds which creates the sound and you control the airflow with your feet and you manipulate the keyboards for the notes uh, for the melody or the chords that you want to vocalize this became the standard of the harmonium class of free reed organs so it kind of spreads like quite rapidly within the western european circuit as well and soon enough you see uh, advertisements for the harmonium appearing in magazines that are read across the colonial world now the primary use that the harmonium is put to during this time is again very domestic music making and sometimes in the church so it's advertised to both these constituencies the first constituency that of uh, domestic home music making is interesting because this is also the time that middle class people across europe are becoming musically involved in a way that they weren't before uh, especially women and women being able to play music is seen as a desirable quality in the marriage market so you have more and more uh, women learning how to play a range of keyboard instruments from the piano to the harmonium uh, but also men slowly coming on to the this new musical boat and musical culture that is developing in europe and uh, the harmonium appears at this fortuitous constellation uh, and you know it finds a large clientele it soon is advertised across a range of print media including in journals that are targeted to a colonial audience and uh, one of the features of the harmonium that is constantly mentioned in this early advertisements is that it can hold its tuning 
in all kinds of climate, especially tropical climate, its portability and its price. It's about less than a fourth of what a piano, a decent piano costs. Reverend James Long, who was an Anglican priest uh, in Calcutta in the first half of the 19th century, had this to say about the piano. Pianos were very dear, 2,000 rupees being frequently paid for a grand one. But in hot weather, with open doors, they soon cracked and warped, or met the fate of an organ, which in 1751 was sent out for the Calcutta church. But on being opened, it fell to pieces, all the woodwork having been eaten up by white ants. At this point, the harmonium's primary home in India is the church. And most of the churches are trying to raise money, subscription from their congregation to buy harmoniums, right? And so one of the biggest champions of the harmonium during its early days in colonial India was Reverend Henry Polehampton, who was the chaplain of Lucknow City Church. During the first half of 1857, just before the great mutiny broke out, he was writing a letter to his mother saying that how he's trying to raise money from his congregation to buy a harmonium. And he focused on precisely those advantages of the harmonium that we've already spoken about, that it's cheap, that it's portable, that it can retain its tuning in tropical climates. So around May, the mutiny explodes. And then in July, he sustains a gunshot in one of the skirmishes that is happening in Lucknow. And he doesn't survive the gunshot, he dies. Uh, but the harmonium doesn't die with him. Uh, his wife, Emily, is equally invested in the harmonium. So around November, as the mutiny is intensifying, the British decide to evacuate all the Europeans out of Lucknow. And Miss Emily Polehampton is one of the people who needs to be evacuated as well. So on the morning of 19th of November, uh, she's supposed to travel out of Lucknow. And she remembers the harmonium that her husband had raised the subscription for and which was lying uh, in the chapel. Uh, she hadn't seen it since the mutiny had broken out, since her husband had died. But uh, for whatever reason, she decided to rescue the harmonium from the chapel. Later in the morning, she goes with one of her Indian attendants to the chapel, rescues the harmonium, travels with the harmonium on camelback all the way from Lucknow to Allahabad, puts the harmonium on a train to Calcutta, travels with the harmonium herself to Calcutta and then ships it off to England. And I say this story to indicate the kind of emotional bonds that these European missionaries who brought the harmonium over from Europe to India developed with the instrument. We don't know what happens to the Polehampton Harmonium after it reaches England, but we know that it landed safely uh, in the port of Plymouth, and that's the last that we know. The Bengali Bhadralok, who are pretty close to the colonial cultural ethos at this point, uh, were not really a part of the Sepoy mutiny at all, and the kind of upsurge that you saw in northern India uh, the Bengali elites and the Bhadralo classes were not a part of it. From the 1860s onwards, you find this new, what back then would have been new age religious reform movements like the Brahmo Samaj, which was a theistic movement uh, centered in Bengal primarily, uh, taking to 
being inspired by the Christian mode of service and worship and taking to the harmonium as well and patterning their own religious service along the lines of a Christian service. So they use the harmonium to sing the hymns that they've written. Rabindranath Tagore's eldest brother, Dvijendranath Tagore, was the appointed harmonium for the Brahmo Samaj in Calcutta. And we have records from colonial officials who've gone to observe a Brahmo Samaj service, writing in detail about Dvijendranath Tagore's harmonium playing skills. But again, mind you, at this time, when we're talking about the harmonium, we're still talking about an instrument which resembles, at least from the outside, more the piano than what we understand as the harmonium today, right? So you play the harmonium seated on a stool or a chair with both hands, manipulating the bellows with your feet. So the next watershed moment in the life of the harmonium in India occurs with the reinvention of the harmonium by the Bengali instrument maker Dwarkanath Ghosh in the 1880s. Now, Dwarkanath had trained as a piano tuner and an instrument repairer with Harold & Company, which was the largest music retail store in 19th century Calcutta. Uh, he opened his own shop, a small one, in 1875, and he called it, very innocuously, Ghosh & Son. But three years down the line, the life of Dwarkanath Ghosh and his music business enterprise would change quite dramatically. Because in 1878... Scaling up his business ambitions, he founded a larger establishment under the name Dwarkin and Son. And such was the success of his new enterprise that Dwarkanath's concern became one of the biggest Indian-owned music businesses in India at that time. Uh, he was, at this point, largely importing European musical instruments, a range of them, from piano to flute, steel flute, and so on and so forth. Um, and he was selling it to both a European clientele, as well as those Indians who had gotten enamored with European music and were trying to play it themselves at that time. Then, in 1887 he fabricated a small and entirely hand-manipulated free reed organ, which he also called the harmonium. We can speculate that perhaps the posture was one of the reasons why he thought we should actually try a keyboard instrument, a free reed organ, that one can play seated on the floor because most of the Indian instruments are played seated on the floor. So it's good to bear in mind that Dwarkanath's harmonium looked very different from its namesake that the European missionaries and the Europeans had brought over, which the Brahmo Samaj people were also using in their religious services. Uh, his was a much, much smaller instrument. It was shaped like a trunk. The keyboard had been abridged from four octaves to two and a half octaves. There was a cloth bellow attached to the back of the trunk which had to be manipulated by hand in order to suck air in and make it pass through the reeds. And he presented it to the market by saying that it's one of the most cheaply affordable free reed organs that one could buy at that point. Coming up on the other side of the break. Tagore uh, himself came out as a big opponent of the harmonium later on in his life. The harmonium was corrupting 
the Indian musical year decided to ban the harmonium from being played on the airwaves in India. In Kannada, vachanas are a particular kind of poetry that we are going to look at a lot of examples today. Ullavaru shivalayava maduvaru nanena maadalayya vadavanayya there is Ravana Siddha, who is a shepherd. There is Devar Dasimaya, weaver. Molige Maraya, woodcutter. Madiwala Machideva, the washerman. A cowherd, a rope maker. Barber, a hunter. And even Maritande, the burglar. Savillada, kedillada, so we have the amazing M.D. Pallavi singing the Vachana poems. Na- we have the wonderful guitarist Bruce Lee Money accompanying her. So come with me on this journey. Now what allowed Dwarkanath to launch his hand harmonium at the price point that he did, which was around 15 rupees at the time, were three things. First, given that his harmonium was a much smaller object, it used much less wood. Uh, Since the keyboard was abridged from four to two, two and a half, it used much less brass or steel. But most importantly, the third thing was two revolutions that happened in material sciences in the preceding two decades um, that allowed Dwarkanath to employ these new materials for his keyboard replacing ivory or bone capping as it had been originally done. And these two materials were PVC or polyvinyl chloride which was synthesized by a German scientist called Eugen Baumann in 1873 and cellulose nitrate or as we popularly call it today celluloid which was synthesized by John Hyatt in the 1860s. So John Hyatt was interested in finding an alternative material for billiard balls, which too were made of ivory up until that point. And he finds this material that he thinks can be a substitute. And what is interesting is that in the early days, celluloid was advertised as an ivory substitute in different kinds of media. And it was advertised as something being three times cheaper than ivory. So from this, perhaps we get a sense of why Dwarkanath's harmonium could be placed at the price point that it was when it was launched. Now with his instrument, you could sit on the floor, manipulate the bellows with one of your hands and the keyboard with the other, and you would get perhaps not as rich a sound as the bigger harmonium that you played with two hands and your feet, but nonetheless, something that sufficed. And the fact that it did suffice, we know from how popular the instrument became immediately after it hit the market, right? It spread like wildfire. It permeates into various different kinds of socio-musical contexts, to different genres of music, including the Hindustani classical sphere. And slowly you have not only increasingly vocalists using it as accompaniment, but also it emerges over time as a solo instrument. And you have people like uh, Bhaiya Jigand Patrao, 
गोविंदराव तेम्बे भूरे खान भीष्मदेव चट्टोपाध्याय हु विल बिकम हारमोनियम वर्चुअस वाज इन ओवर द कोर्स ऑफ द ट्वेंटी सेंचुरी the early decades of the 20th century is when the nationalist movement is reaching its maturity which will become the indian freedom movement subsequently and you have a range of nationalist leaders very important art and music critics railing against the harmonium saying that it's corrupting indian musical sensibilities that it is corrupting the musical ear because the harmonium cannot accommodate one of the fundamental aspects of indian music which is the shruti or the microtones between two major notes shruti cannot be accommodated on a keyboard instrument a keyboard instruments typically have discrete notes you move from one note to the other and you cannot play microtones which is the best translation for shruti that one can have in english microtones on a keyboard instrument so if you can't play the microtones which are so central to the entire indian musical theory and practice then by implication this instrument is not suited to indian music but most of the harmonium accompanists devised ways of simulating the shruti you can't still play it and there was also a, actually an effort to come up with a shruti harmonium in fact it is still there it, it is not a very popular instrument at all and it never found the kind of hook that the regular harmonium found in india and typically when uh, not very accomplished musicians uh, played the harmonium to accompany themselves on the vocals or somebody else they actually just played the sa and the pakis to create the similar kind of a drone effect that the tanpura has and you sang over that you press the keys very fast and it gives you a simulation of the microtones so within about 20 years that is by the time it's the first few decades of the 20th century you find the harmonium installed into many many different kinds of musical practices Now one thing we should remember over here is that music making was largely a caste based occupation in India and secondly you had the gharana systems or the guru shishya parampara which had a slightly different kind of a socio economic focus in terms of musical practice right so um, those who were not within the quote unquote what we today call the classical sphere came from certain caste backgrounds whose caste occupation was to play music Now the introduction of the harmonium and its wide acceptance cuts across this caste divide of music making in the Indian context. And one of the most interesting uptake of the harmonium happens amongst the new middle classes that are emerging with colonialism in the later half of the 19th century and the first few decades of the 20th century. And uh, one of the main reason why this happens 
is the convergence of the harmonium with the print culture in various Indian languages of the time. So, in fact, it could be argued that the harmonium prompted the creation of an entirely new genre of printed text in India, that is the music manual. Uh, from 1872 onwards, we find in the Bengali print market, uh, especially given that the harmonium first was introduced in the Bengal region and then it went to the other parts, uh, one harmonium manual after the other began appearing. To the extent by the 1910s, there were at least six different uh, music manuals, that is harmonium manuals, authored by six different people in the Bengali market alone. In other parts of India too, you see harmonium manuals appearing. So during the first few decades of the 20th century, you have a series called the Harmonium Master being brought out in Hindi. And uh, it was a 15-part project of various authorship. In the 1950s, the famous Naval Kishore Press actually combines all of these 15 volumes that have come out under the title of Harmonium Master and publishes it in two volumes under the same name. For example, the best-known harmonium manual of its time, the Harmonium Shikha, which was authored by Satyadri's grandfather, Upendra Kishore Roychodri, clearly stated this, that the book was meant for the otherwise busy, modern or adhunik individual, so that, and I quote here, they could amuse themselves according to their musical needs and at their own leisure. Now, what is interesting is that Dwarkin and Dwarkin's company was also a major player in the music manual, specifically the harmonium manual market. And in fact, Upendra Krishore's book, The Harmonium Shikha, was sponsored by Dwarkin and Sons. The harmonium also has a very curious history in a field of musical practice and music making that defines modern musical, modern Bengali musical sensibilities in particular, that is Rabindra Sangeet. Tagore uh, himself came out as a big opponent of the harmonium later on in his life and he called it the bane of Indian music and so on and so forth. But the same Tagore also publicly endorsed Dwarkin's harmonium and he wrote a letter eulogizing the qualities of Dwarkin's harmonium, one that was quoted by Dwarkin and Sons in their adverts in the 1940s. Right? But the normative understanding of the Rabindra Sangeet establishment was that Ramindra Sangeet should properly be accompanied by an esraj, not an harmonium. And this again goes to show the immense autonomous power of the harmonium, that despite this resistance, both at an individual level of Ramindranath Tagore as well as the institutional level of Ramindra Sangeet practice in general, that it continued to proliferate the context of Ramindra Sangeet practice. So you find uh, the harmonium accompanying Rabindra Sangeet at a social level almost across the board. And it is only in the formal context of studio recording that the Asraj makes an appearance. So at this period, we have this curious situation where you have extremely important figures of the nationalist movement like Tagore, Gandhi, Nehru, 
all of them staged against the harmonium and saying extremely uncharitable things about this particular instrument which by the way is a product of the genius of an indian instrument maker uh, nonetheless all of these people are opposed to it on the other hand parallelly you have this immense social proliferation of this instrument going on the fact that nehru wants to ban the harmonium that gandhi says that he finds the sound of the charkha to be more melodious than that of the harmonium uh, tagore despite having been involved with the harmonium growing up uh, completely rejects it and calls it the bane of indian music despite all of these very important figures saying all of these uncharitable things people don't seem to care people are gravitating towards the harmonium and harmonium is entering newer and newer musical contexts cutting across class caste gender spectrum of the indian society so now you have the harmonium replacing what used to be the primary accompanying instruments in these different musical contexts such as the sarangi the esraj the dilruba and so on however despite its massive social acceptance the power of these important figures of the indian nationalist movement nonetheless carried a lot of weight to the extent that in 1940 the all india radio under the leadership of john folds who also believed that the harmonium was corrupting the indian musical year decided to ban the harmonium from being played on the airwaves in india and the ban would remain in place for the next 3 decades until 1970-71 when the harmonium was reinstated into uh, all india radio's programming that's another story did you enjoy this show then don't forget to like and share our channel follow us and subscribe to be updated when we release new shows and episodes on the next episode Yeah, the musicological critique against the harmonium that was coming out was largely addressed to the classical musical domain. So, in symbolic protests, they brought out this funeral procession carrying a harmonium on their shoulders, and they buried it with great noise and pomp. You can listen to Radio Azim Premji University on YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, and wherever you get your podcasts from. Make sure you check out the show notes where we share the show resources and acknowledgments. And don't forget to subscribe or like our channel for future episodes. You're listening to Rap Sun Rahe Hain. You're listening to Sunna Thar. Singla ke kanna da. You keltai dira. Hai kada. Ve katha sun. Radio. Radio. Azim Premji University.